a dark, damp November evening on the outskirts of the city of Cardiff some 32 years ago. Our fledgling church was only six weeks old and we had just completed a midweek service in a primary school hall. The chairs were being stacked, the caretaker was waiting rather impatiently to lock up the building for the night when quite out of the blue he came out with some very derogatory statements about those who had gathered with us. People perhaps with learning difficulties, those on the margins of society. Although the caretaker didn't phrase his observations quite as politely as I just did. He said, your church seems to attract them, very sneeringly. He was not only disparaging the people that we had with us in that new church, but also belittling the work that the church was attempting to do on a brand new, socially deprived housing estate. I responded to the caretaker by saying, society turns such people away. Their reaction is just like yours. But the reason that we gather people that you might call odd is that they know in our church they will find love and acceptance. The world at large might pile them on the garbage heap, but we don't. They're precious to us because they're precious to God. A caretaker was a tough guy. He walked away from that conversation in tears. I have no idea why that remark touched something very deeply in him or what God was beginning to do in his heart at that time. But it was one of those occasions where I sensed that God gave me words, a little bit of his wisdom to deal with that comment. And as I walked away, I felt rather pleased with myself, or actually with God. I felt pleased with God, and I thought, I'd better make a note of that, that answer that I gave. So I did, I put it in my, my notebook. And some time later, that notebook, it got transferred to a sermon. And some time later, it got transferred to the book that Julie and I wrote just a couple of years ago, Grace and Glory. That's why I can remember it so well. But I'm sure that you have been in that kind of place where you were in a situation where you needed to answer or respond to someone and words just seemed to, seemed to come. And you look back on yourself afterwards and you think, my word, did I just say that? And I'm sure that all of you can relate to that. That you felt a well beyond your human ability or wisdom, an answer that God enabled you to give. Well, this morning, we are going to be reading of a response. An amazing response. A godly response. A response full of wisdom by three young men whose lives were in mortal danger. And this, this story that we're having this morning, the story that transforms, is a story taken from two and a half thousand years ago from the nation of Iraq. Although it wasn't called Iraq in those days, it was called Babylon. Babylon was a world superpower and aggressively conquered all the surrounding nations. The Babylonian armies, led by a man called King Nebuchadnezzar, defeated Jerusalem, and over a period of about 20 years, continued to ransack the city and finally destroyed the city of Jerusalem in the year 586 BCE. They were dark days for the people of Israel. King Nebuchadnezzar 
deported Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the first batch that he deported, according to Daniel, chapter 1, verse 4, were young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So what this king, Nebuchadnezzar, of the Babylonians did, he, he took the brightest and the best. He took the high achievers, and, which included Daniel and his three mates. <clears throat> the Babylonians give them new names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Now, I really want you to remember those. <laughs> I don't really. <clears throat> These Jewish boys, deported from their homeland from Jerusalem, separated from their precious temple and from the priests and from the sacrifices, in a foreign land, they still chose to remain faithful to their God. King Nebuchadnezzar, possibly in his desire to unite the, the conquered peoples of many lands, diverse in languages, diverse in cultures, diverse in so many ways, built a 90 feet high statue of gold. And he commanded everyone in his empire to bow down and worship the statue. Now, if unity, uniting all of these conquered peoples was his aim, <laughs> his plan really was never going to work. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. If you have your Bibles there, we're in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verse 13. And if you've not got your Bible, we have uh, words on screen. Daniel, chapter 3, verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What an amazing, an amazing answer. What courage. And I thought of my answer those 32 years ago in that school hall in Cardiff. That was good, but this is brilliant. <laughs> the king was furious, but he was also fair. He didn't act on their disobedience immediately, but they gave them an opportunity, a second chance. Disobey again, and it was curtains for them. And when I was reading that passage just a couple of days ago, I was um, reminded of a man called Polycarp. 
Is that a name known to any of you? Polycarp? Yes, one or two, yes. Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna is a city in modern-day Turkey, and he was uh, the next generation after the apostles. And he was a godly man, and he was martyred for his faith in AD 156. The local magistrate tried to convince Polycarp to deny Christ and bow before the, the, the false idols. And Polycarp responded with a declaration which is now quite well known. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my king and saviour? And when you know church history, you will know that church history is littered with such men and women. The writer to Hebrews in the New Testament speaks of them as, as the world not being worthy of them. Polycarp was the generation after the apostles. Well, the generation after Polycarp, there was another man by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian was a great theologian and a writer. And he once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he was referring to there is that as the martyrs went singing to the lions, they actually encouraged and emboldened fellow Christians. And because of the martyrs, the church grew. You might think that martyrdom would have done the opposite, wouldn't you? You're seeing somebody being martyred for their faith and think, well, if that's what happens to Christians, I'm going the other way. And actually that happened for some, but not for many. Actually for many, to see what happened, it emboldened their faith and they followed Jesus and the church grew. We're reading in verse 16 that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now, these guys had such a, a trust in God that they could look directly in the face of the man who had total power over them with unflinching confidence. And as I read those words this week, I was reminded of the words of Jesus. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, do you remember? Pilate says to him, don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And these three Hebrew lads, just like Jesus, just had great confidence in God in that time of great trial. And I wonder whether Daniel had them in mind when he was writing uh, his journal, which became the book of Daniel that we find in our New Testament, because in chapter 11, verse 32, Daniel wrote, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. What a great verse that is, isn't it? The people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. You've heard me say before that there's a whole world of a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. I know an awful lot about Queen Elizabeth. I know that she has four children. I know that she was married to Prince Philip. I know that he died this year. I know that she is the longest serving monarch. I know that she is a fellow believer in Christ. I know so much about her, but I've never met her, not got to know her. And there's a huge difference between knowing about someone and really knowing them. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. 
And what we're talking about here, I believe, with these three Hebrew lads, is that we're not talking about head knowledge, we're not talk- but we're talking rather of a living, vibrant relationship, a deep awareness of God's presence. And in my experience, I would say that all the people that I've met over the years, those who truly know their God, they often are enabled to look at adversity uh, in the face and exhibit a confidence in the tough times, a confidence which is well beyond what is humanly or naturally possible, you might think. Those that know their God seem to always experience peace in the storm, a peace that is beyond human comprehension. They're often able to look at fearful situations right in the eye and not be afraid. And I'm sure that that could be said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen again to their words. Verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, still being polite, weren't they? That we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And I think it's so much that we can learn from these guys all these years on, two and a half thousand years on. Firstly, they declare that they don't need to defend themselves because God is their defender. And that's one of the loveliest images that we find of God in the scriptures, that he is a defender. He is a defender of the weak. He is a defender of the outcast. He is a defender of the widow and the orphan and the lonely and the unfriended. And we have such joy in this church singing uh, one of the newer songs, which says, you are my joy, you are my song. You're the well, the one I'm drawing from. You are my refuge, my whole life long. And then later on in the song, it says, surely my God is the strength of my soul. Your love defends me. And when I feel like I'm all alone, your love defends me. Secondly, we read that they declare their total trust in God. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. I just love their attitude. Really do. Do your worst, King Nebuchadnezzar. But, you know, just remember that one man and God is a majority. That's the kind of attitude that these guys have. And this morning... We might not be standing before a king who is threatening to throw us into the furnace, but we might have other threats before us. Threats regarding our employment, concerns over relationships, uncertainties over career choices, financial worries, domestic pressures, fears for the well-being of loved ones or aging family members. And if you ever need encouragement in your faith, Just go through the Bible uh, with a concordance and look up the statements, God is able. Jude 24, he's able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before his glory. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he is able to make all grace abound to you. 2 Timothy 1, 12, he's able to keep that which you've committed unto him against that day. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his mighty power that is at work 
within us, and many, many more. Notice these three Hebrew lads do not demand a miracle. They don't demand a miracle. They don't say to Nebuchadnezzar that their God's going to do this for them. They don't say to God, oh God, deliver us from this furnace, otherwise we're not going to follow you anymore. Their attitude is a little bit more like Job's. Job once said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And these three guys don't see death as the ultimate disaster, but rather they worshipped a God who was far greater than death itself. And I find this quite remarkable. I really do because these guys lived 600 years before Christ, before Christ walked on the earth, before Christ died a death that we have been celebrating in our communion this morning, before Christ rose again from the grave. And in a sense, like many of those great Hebrews in the hall of faith that we read in Hebrews chapter 11, they looked forward to these things. Hebrews 11.13 tells us, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They, and I would include these three Hebrew lads in that, looked forward, believing that God would see them through death. But if they could do that, how much more? Can we take confidence in the God as we look back upon the events of Easter Sunday? They were looking forward to it. It was all hazy to them. There was no clarity at all. They were looking forward in faith to this time. We as Christians were looking back to the events on Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday demonstrates to us that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can never, ever lose out. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the great chapters in the Bible, one of my favorite chapters. It's a chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. It's an amazing chapter, 58 verses in all. The first 57 verses, Paul the Apostle tells us all about Jesus risen from the grave. And then in verse 28, he just brings it home to us, and he says this, Therefore, I've said to you many times before, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, ask what it is therefore. And you must do that. There's a link here. Therefore, for that reason. For what reason? For everything that I've just been talking to you about in the first 57 verses. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, the resurrection of Christ informs us that we, as Christians, as his followers, will never, ever, ever lose out. It's impossible. Never mind what material loss we might experience in serving Christ in this life. Never mind the suffering that we might go through. Never mind the abuse that we might have. Never mind the ways that perhaps in the past that you have been misunderstood or misrepresented uh, or criticized. Paul says here, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God wins. And because God wins, we win. 
He is saying, it's all going to be okay. As this life isn't everything. It isn't all. That the Lord of eternity has all of eternity to make it up to you. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have a faith which knew that God could intervene. Um, a, a faith that prays with expectancy for, for God to answer. But they also has, have a faith which trusts. They trust so much in God's goodness that they actually make no attempt whatsoever to dictate to God how he should answer their prayer. They trust him. They trust in his goodness. And that's good enough for them. So basically, God, whichever way you, you, you go on this one, that's okay with us. That's the faith that they had. Lord, you, we, we believe that you can deliver us. But even if you don't, that's okay. <laughs> we're not going to bow down to that idol. That's where they were coming from. And sadly, it's not the faith that I've seen in some church movements where their church congregations are encouraged sometimes to claim their healing. Oh, I so detest those words. Claim their healing or assert their faith for a new Porsche or whatever it might be. And when it doesn't come, their healing or the Porsche, they're told sometimes, often, that they've not had enough faith in the first place. Or maybe that there's some sin in their lives. Now I would say that such teaching is deceptive. It's not biblical. It's actually unchristian. Because the God of miracles that we read in the Gospels is also the God of suffering on the cross. Have you got that? The God of miracles is also the God of suffering. The God who said yes to Jesus in healing the blind and raising the dead said no to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and uh, to evade the, the suffering that was before him. On occasions, God does airlift us out of trouble. We've all experienced that, I'm sure. But there are other times when he doesn't just airlift us out of trouble, he actually parachutes in to be with us in those times. And that's what we read in the rest of the story here. We read that these three men were placed in a furnace and then in a little while, we are told, verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. There was someone with them in the furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar said, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Well, who or what could that have been? Some people believe it was an angel of the Lord. Some people believe it was a, a pre-incarnate Christ being there with them in the furnace. Well, we don't really know. But what we do know is that they came out unhurt, unharmed, 
not even a hair on their head was singed. And Nebuchadnezzar himself was in absolutely no doubt as to what had happened. He acknowledged that it was their God who saved them. Isn't it great? Isn't it great when an unbeliever can see God at work? And one of the times, I believe, when God is most evident to an onlooker is when they observe how a Christian responds to a furnace experience. That is so important. Let me give you that again. One of the times when an unbeliever can see God at work is when he is observing or she is observing how a Christian responds to a furnace experience. That is when things go wrong. When that follower of Jesus experiences bad things. When they suffer loss. Loss of a job. Loss of reputation. Loss of a child. Loss of a career opportunity. Loss of health. But during that time, they respond quietly with grace and with faith and with joy, with trust, and with hope, and with a gentle spirit. And onlookers often ask, how, how can this be? How can this be? Why are they not cursing their lot? Why are they showing such peace in the storm? Why do they display such calm and joy in times of sadness? Why are they giving thanks in such despairing times? They ask why, but then so often, in my experience at least, they ask who. Who is that who is with them through this time? Is their God real? And I've known many who at those times as they observed others going through these times of testing and tribulation, and they have done so with the Lord being with them, and that has spoken very, very deeply to others who have looked on. Guys, would you like to come back? We will conclude our service in a few moments. But I'd just like to say that for those of you here this morning, perhaps, who are presently experiencing furnace experiences, the trials of your faith, then I just want you to be encouraged that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is also our God. And he is here this morning. Psalm 46 says that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, and one of those therefores again, because of that, because of what we have just read in verse 1, because God is our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake in their surging. And I would just love this morning to be able to pray with you. Would you stand, please? Would you just bow your heads for a moment? There may be something that's in this story today, this story that transforms, that you sense is transforming your heart at this time, something that God has just spoken to you about. God is in this place. He is the one who is with you walking through that furnace of life. He is the one with his hand on the thermostat. 
He wants you to know that. He wants you to know his presence. He doesn't want you to think that you're all alone, fearful, but he is with you each step of the way. I just want to pray right now for those maybe who are experiencing this time. It seems as if God is a thousand miles away. It seems as if the, the heavens are made of brass. You've not got that experience that you once experienced. Well, just open your heart this morning and say, Lord, in my unbelief, I believe. Lord, in my doubting, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cling on to you. I'm going to hold on to you at this time. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the God who has often airlifted us out of troubles and trials, the times that we have found so hard, but other times, probably more often, that we've experienced your presence in them. But Lord, you've parachuted in to be where we are. And that is my prayer, Lord, for those within this family today, that you might parachute in into circumstances that are difficult, perhaps, for many. And I just pray, Lord, that my friends will just experience the God who is their refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble, the God who promises not to leave us or forsake us. And I just pray today, Lord, that leaving this place today, their situations might or might not have changed. But Lord, I pray that they will have changed. That, Lord, there will be a new faith and a new trust. I pray, Lord, that there will be a, a new spring in their step this week as they go forth and have to do all that they will in workplaces and at home amongst the community that they live. I just pray, Lord, that there will be a new sense of hope, light in darkness, I pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you.